There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kotz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are joined by indie trio The Vivian Girls for a conversation and live performance. Plus, we'll review the new album from R&B giant Usher, and I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Don't you take it so hard now, and please don't take it so bad. Greg, those dulcet tones, of course, belong to Axl Rose, the singer of Guns N' Roses, the only member left standing of what is left of one of the most important bands of the 80s. You know, once the most powerful rock band in the world, and now pretty much the butt of of everyone's jokes in, in hard rock. Chinese democracy, we waited for it forever. It flopped. Who cares about Axl anymore? I'll tell you who. His former manager at Frontline Management, Irving, Azoff is suing him for $1.9 million in unpaid fees. What's interesting about this, besides the fact that Axel doesn't pay his bills, is that Irving Azoff also happens to be the uh, CEO at Ticketmaster who helped engineer the merger with Live Nation, now about a month old, and he remains a powerful executive at this new super corporation that's going to control the concert industry in America. One of the arguments people had against that merger was you can't manage artists and then also book them and promote their concerts and sell their tickets and sell their merchandise and control every aspect of this business because where's the artist going to go for other options say if they fall out with you Mm -hmm. can Axl Rose and what's left of Guns N' Roses perform anywhere in America anymore if they're in a a legal disagreement with with Irving Azoff I don't know the other thing I found really interesting about news of this lawsuit was that it it apparently was an oral contract that obliged Axl Rose to pay frontline Irving Azoff 15% of his gross earnings as a performer now Azoff has been in this business for like half a yeah. century. And he had an right? oral contract with one of the most misguided rock stars ever. An oral contract? <laughs> Is that how you do business? That's really? absurd. In the 21st century? Big news in the music and tech worlds is the uh, launch of the Spotify music platform in the United States. It has been delayed yet again. Jim, we've been talking off and on about this creation by Daniel Eck, who has invented 
this music platform. He's only 26 years old. What is Spotify? It is a music a service that debuted in Europe in 2008. Basically what it is, it offers a lot of music, millions of songs instantly. It is an incredibly easily navigated site. Uh, are you downloading these songs, Greg, or you are can, you just streaming them? You, you can stream them to hear them, which is uh, an amazing service in itself. If you want to hear a song, you're going to be able to hear it instantly. If you want to purchase it, you can download it. So there are multiple options to hearing this music. It has 7 million users, 320,000-plus subscribers since launching in 2008. It is the best music service of its kind. People who have used it, I have been one, describe it as the best music service available since the launch of Napster mm. a decade ago. It is that revolutionary, potentially. But it ain't here. But it is not here. The problem is that Eck has been trying to work out licensing deals with over 5,000 entities in the U.S. in order to create an above-board service. In other words, he wants to pay artists. He wants to pay publishers. He wants to be totally legitimate. But his plans to launch it in the U.S. have been kiboshed by the fact that this legal system is so thick with all these contracts. When I talked to him last fall in Washington, D.C., he was very optimistic about launching the service in the early part of this year. In the last few weeks, stories have surfaced as saying, no, not until the third quarter of 2010, but then we'll be ready to go. In the last couple of days, more stories saying, uh-uh, that ain't going to happen either. Mm. Who knows <laughs> if we'll see Spotify in 2010. What's interesting about this, Jim, to me, is that here's the music industry with a legit service that people are really excited about, and yet it can't get any kind of footing in the biggest music market in the world. Meanwhile, people are consistently gravitating to these rogue services where they don't have to pay anything to get the music that Spotify would otherwise offer legitimately for a fee, and seeing the start of a internet world where people are actually getting paid for their music. So a lot of frustration on the part of Daniel Eck, who I think has, has the best interests of the music industry in mind, but he can't get his service up and running in the U.S. It remains to be seen whether it will launch in 2010 or if we'll have to wait yet another year for his service to launch. That is Pavement with their wonderful single from the alternative era, Summer Babe. Summer's not quite here yet, Greg, but it is 75 degrees to here today at Chicago Public Radio on Navy Pier. It's in the air. It's coming. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Let's hope. Y- you know, at this time of year, every year for the last few years, we've talked about the big summer music story in the concert industry, and that has been these destination festivals. For the last five, six years at least, the story in the industry has been you go to the music. The music no longer really comes to you. It's moved out of tours that hit all the sheds across the United States, and it's gone to this model of what's called the Destination Festival. Big festivals where people travel there, stay there for several days, pay a couple hundred bucks, and see tons and tons of music, often rosters of 100 or 150 bands. Let's take a look at this year's big summer festivals as they're shaping up. The festival that sort of shaped the the U.S. festival circuit about a decade ago was Coachella, the big one out in California in the desert. It has become the signpost festival of the summer and the first big one. Its lineup this year, pretty impressive. They've got a rare appearance by Gorillaz, Damon Albarn's group. It's got a reunion by Faith No More, the the neo-metal band from the early 90s. And it's got a performance by Jay-Z as well as LCD Sound System. 
the Sasquatch Festival in, in Washington in late May. My Morning Jacket, Massive Attack, Ween, MGMT out with a new album. Bonnaroo, Dave Matthews Band, Kings of Leon, and Stevie Wonder. Again, a very eclectic lineup for Bonnaroo in Tennessee in middle of June. Two big festivals in Chicago in July and August. Pitchfork Festival has that pavement reunion as the centerpiece of its lineup, as well as Modest Mouse and LCD Sound System. Lollapalooza's headliners, they haven't been officially announced yet, but we can tell you in good faith that there's probably going to be Soundgarden reuniting, Green Day, The Strokes, Lady Gaga, and Phoenix. Then there's the return of the Traveling Festival. We didn't think we'd see them again, Jim, but here they are. I think it's really interesting. You know, the Lilith Fair has not been heard of since the alternative era. It's been gone off the scene for at least a decade. And now we have Sarah McLaughlin's celebration of women in music, diverse genres. The top headliners, the, the, the rosters change in every city as it, as it moves across the country, but the top headliners are Sarah McLaughlin, Mary J. Blige, Kelly Clarkson, and Cat Power. You wouldn't see them on one stage anywhere else. She's going back to that old model. The first generation Lollapalooza was let's put together this fascinating day of very diverse music and we'll take it from city to city across the country. A couple of other festivals still in that mold, the Vans Warp Tour. Mm-hmm. OzFest, though, dropped out of the scene last year. And now we have Lilith coming back and thinking that's something worth returning to. That model of, you know, we'll take the music to you. You don't have to come to us. And it makes sense. I mean, if you're going to travel out to the desert and in California and sleep on the ground or you're going to come to Chicago, you got hotels to pay and you got transportation costs. You know, it's a big deal to go to one of these festivals. That's Can't Get Over You from the Vivian Girls, their second album, Everything Goes Wrong. The Vivian Girls are a band that formed at Pratt Institute in New York, where Cassie Ramone was attending college a few years ago. That's where she met the band's original drummer, Frankie Rose, and they hooked up with uh, Katie Goodman, a bass player from uh, Rutgers University. The trio went on to record a self-titled debut album in 2008, 10 songs, 22 minutes. They (laughs) thought that was going to be it. Just put this out themselves, basically. Lo and behold, the the record caused quite a sensation on the Internet. A lot of people writing about it, saying powerful new band, powerful new voice, got picked up by the In the Red label and reissued later in 2008, became one of the most talked about records of that year. The follow-up came out in 2009, Everything Goes Wrong. By that point, Frankie Rose was out of the band as a drummer, and the new drummer was Ellie Kohler, joining Goodman and Ramon. We've loved both of their albums. The sound continues to expand, but basically still rooted in that lo-fi pop punk with a mix of girl group harmonies from the early 60s. The Vivian Girls are characters in the work of the outsider artist from Chicago, Henry Darger. He invented this fantasy world where these children, the Vivian Girls, were were slaves and they were tortured by unseen evil forces. It's very disturbing stuff. The Vivian Girls are playing with this in terms of, on the one hand, we're pretending we're nine years old, we just picked up these instruments. On the other hand, it's very, very sophisticated music. And we were fortunate to have the group stop by the Jimmy K. Maybe studio when they were on tour for a chat and a performance, I started by asking guitarist-vocalist Cassie Ramone to take us through their story from the beginning. 
Let's see, the band started about three years ago, pretty much exactly three years ago. It started out with uh, me and Katie and Frankie, who um, isn't in the band anymore. And we played Detroit last night, and it's funny because we hadn't played Detroit since our first tour. The first show of our first tour was in Detroit. So that's, I just skipped a lot of a lot of time. So the first place, <laughs> the first place outside of New York you ever played a couple of years ago was, was Detroit? Outside of New York and New Jersey, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so Cassie, what was the, um, you told me the story once, and I want to get it clear, um, <laughs> about the name, the, the reference to the uh, Henry Darger manuscript. Yeah. Frankie, I guess, named the band, is that correct, for, for like the first gig is sort of, it was almost an accidental kind of thing? It was, it was this kind of thing that we, we got offered a show, we were pr- practicing for two months, so we needed a name for the show, and we, we spent two weeks tossing around all these ideas. We, didn't, we couldn't think of anything good, and then one day Frankie was just like, let's name it Vivian Girls, and me and Katie were like, cool, it's, that's a good name, and that's pretty much how it happened. Did you know anything about the Vivian Girls before that, you know, the implications of that name? Um, not, not so much, but, well, we researched it before we actually agreed to name the band that. We, we Wikipedia'd Henry Darger before we, we mm-hmm. like, really decided, and then we thought it was really cool. So we went with it. And since then, we've researched a lot more about it. I think it's mm. an awesome concept. I'm really glad it's our band name. Well, explain that a little bit more. Why do you think, what, what, what is it that you relate to uh, in these characters? Well, what I find interesting about the Vivian girls, as Henry Darger's Vivian girls, is that they, they have a lot of contrasts. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're sweet young girls, but they also have penises, and they fight evil. And um, they fight for Christianity, which I think is really cool. It's just, uh, I'm all flabbergasted, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, just, I just really like how, how many contrasting ideas go, go on in his work, and I think that there's also a lot of contrasting ideas in our music, and I think that our music is neither very masculine or very feminine. It's, uh, it's really weird and dark, but also kind of hopeful in a weird way, so I don't know. That's well I hope said, that doesn't Cassie. sound too cheesy. <laughs> no, I, I think that's I think that's very well said. We have in front of us three young girls who fight evil as well. Why don't, <laughs> why don't we get into a, a song? Okay. What are you going to play for us? Tell us. Do you want to do When I'm Gone? Sure. Cool.
When I'm Gone from the Vivian Girls, that's uh, Cassie Ramone on guitar and vocals, Katie on bass, and Ellie Kohler on drums. From the second album, Everything Goes Wrong, I want to get back to something you said earlier, Cassie, about relating to Darger and, and the contrasts in these characters, and I think that's a big part of the sound in the Vivian Girls, the you know, those vocals kind of referencing some of those girl groups from the early 60s, you know, the Shangri-Las, at least that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, And then definitely. you sort of got that lo-fi punk thing going in the in the music. Was that sound there from the beginning with the three of you when, when, when you started making music together in uh, 2007, started putting those demos out? Um, it was a little bit different, but not too much. I mean, I think our sound has expanded a lot since then, but in the beginning... What we really wanted to do is we always wanted to have melodic songs that were also punkish, but we wanted our songs to all be really fast, all be really short, and all be really loud. And I think that now we've kind of let go of having that mentality. Like, we're more open to having long songs or quiet songs. From the beginning, we wanted to have sweet singing over kind of distorted, messy music. Coming up, we'll have more with the Vivian Girls, plus a review of the new Usher record. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and our guests this week are the members of the rock trio, The Vivian Girls, Cassie Ramone, Allie Kohler, and Katie Goodman. The New York and New Jersey band released their debut album in 2007 to much acclaim, and they followed it up with last year's Everything Goes Wrong. And when they were in the studio, I asked Cassie about the band's career path. So, Cassie, you, you made the demo in 2007. Yeah. And the first album came out a few hundred copies, I guess, right, in early 2008. Is that right? It was. I think it was released in late May 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
500 copies. Right. And at that point, it was like the, the band was a going concern. You know, we're just this little little band and that's it for us. We're just going to put out this one record. I mean, what was the what was the sense of where this band was going? Well, you're asking about their, their, their uh, master marketing yeah, plan? Master is what no, marketing I would plan. say that uh, the progress of our band and our college educations, like the our band started taking off right when we all graduated college. So we were at this point in our lives where we weren't even sure what we were going to do. And all of a sudden we were like our, our records sold out in May. And that's like right when we graduated. And we were like, wow, maybe we can do this band. Because we're like, should we go like find jobs? Or should we yeah. like try to like tour and, you know. That's funny, Katie. Because I, I had read that and I was trying to figure out how you were possibly juggling touring with, with your last year of college. But it, but it ended in where like rich kids would go to Europe. For the summer, <laughs> you got in the van and started touring hard behind that. We, yeah, we, we actually started touring during our last year of college, which ended up being kind of a strain hmm. on our yeah, on was, our lives. I was turning in like Vivian Girls T-shirt artwork for my art project <laughs> my senior year of Pratt. Um, but yeah, like we did our first tour the, the summer after my junior year, before my senior year, and then we did our second tour over winter vacation. Mm-hmm. And our third tour like a day after I graduated. We also did South by Southwest, which happened to fall into our spring break. Yeah. Actually, it didn't fall into my spring break. I just got a lot of absences and there you got go. in trouble. Yeah. Cut, I, cut class. I also wasn't supposed to be there. I was supposed to be in school, but I told all my teachers that – I told all my professors that I was going to South by Southwest because I was playing a show, and most of them were impressed. So they, they all let me go. So, so, okay, the record sells out, much to your surprise. 500 copies. And so what happens after that? Once, once things get rolling – where was the turning point where you thought, okay, there's a, there, there's a second record down the road for us somewhere? Um, the point that we started thinking about a second record was actually when Allie joined a band. Joined the band because I write a lot of songs all the time, and uh, and we had a bunch that like we just started writing a lot of new songs, and Allie joined the band because we didn't want her to be playing like drum beats that she didn't write all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. So then we just started writing and writing, and then we wanted to put out a second album. Um, as soon as possible we actually like we we overwrote for it we had like probably around 20 songs that we wrote for it but mm-hmm. yeah well frankie left the band one of the co-founders of the band and Allie, you jumped right in i mean what was your take on these guys when you when you uh, jumped into the band well katie and i went to Rutgers together so I, I had been friends with both of them for a few years anyway because i knew them through the new brunswick new jersey diy music scene and cassie and katie have been friends since high school so that's how i knew them and I've been a fan of Vivian Girls since the 2000 demos mm. <laughs> <laughs> laying around on everyone's coffee tables in that, New Brunswick. Way back three years ago. Way back. Oh, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I used to listen to the demo all the time and I loved it. And when they said they needed a drummer, I was like, finally, yay. And you, you'd actually <laughs> already gone on a short tour with us. Yeah, I, I did. I played one song with them on a short tour with TV on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I, I want to I get another song, but before we leave New Brunswick, as someone who grew up in Jersey, played the Court Tavern many times, a really, mm-hmm. it's a fertile music scene right now. I mean, you know, Screaming Females and yeah. Titus Andronicus. And, you know, how did, that, how did that help, having that kind of supportive community? I, w- I mean, I would have, like me personally, I probably never would have started playing music if it weren't for living in New Brunswick and mm. just being by, like, surrounded by really supportive friends all the time. Yeah, it was, it was a very supportive scene for girls, especially. Yeah. And not especially, just equally as guys, which you don't find all too often. But Katie and I started a lot of bands throughout college and played in basements in New Brunswick and, you know, hung out with Cassie at shows. 
Yeah, I go to New Brunswick all the time for shows and parties and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's st- I still go there. It's a very important part of who I am. And it is really a basement scene, right? It's, yeah. it's yeah. DIY shows even more than a club. Non-traditional yeah. venues. The first time that, that we actually played a show in New Brunswick not in a basement was like last year. We played the Court Tavern. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we we had like never left the basement ever. Never been to a real club. Yeah. Well, what was the strangest uh, venue for a show that you guys played in New Brunswick? Yeah, there's like a you know does uh, these people lived in a loft and had like a skate ramp in it. And there's also a yoga studio that lets people throw shows in it, which is. Oh weird. yeah, I went to a show at the yoga studio and dude, wait, what about that show at the basement of '97? Which is like the smallest basement of all time and the grossest basement of all time. Oh, yeah. I used to live in this like gross punk house and we used to do shows, but we definitely shouldn't have because the room was like eight by eight. And <laughs> and the uh, basement had carpeting, if you could imagine what that was. And the walls oh. were like covered in mattresses. It was really, mm, really yeah. gross. <laughs> but we played that basement a lot. And, and I mean, it's such a company town. Johnson & Johnson owns New Brunswick. But but do they just not care that these shows happen? I mean, because in Chicago, you need, a, you need a license for everything. The zoning you know? laws in Chicago would never have allowed Well, it, I mean, shows. it's heavily illegal Hev- in New Brunswick. We got tickets all the time. Yeah. And then oh, okay. you just change houses. Yeah. yeah. All right, just move. Everybody moves to a different house every year. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody names their house something that doesn't have an address. So everyone knows, like... The lunchbox or the yeah. the parlor. But Is the lunchbox a real house? I think so, yeah. And uh, But so cops can't know where they are. And then okay. once the cops find out... Maybe we shouldn't out, be telling them all of our secrets. Well, the, I didn't say If the New Brunswick cops are like listening to this radio <laughs> station <laughs> right now. But if Some they are. listen, we'll just switch houses. <laughs> I think you're how's, how's the Stromboli at Stuff Your Face? Is it still good? So good. I just was there recently. How about another song? What are you going to play for us? I think we're going to play Surfing Away. One, two, three, four...
Surfing away from the Vivian girls, that is uh, a rare seven-inch single that is apparently out, sold out completely, right? <laughs> Can't yeah, get it anymore. Yeah, for a while now. Yeah. One of the first songs you did with Allie on drums, Yeah, right? it was uh, actually that seven-inch is like very personal to us because we wrote it with Allie, one of the first songs. We recorded it ourselves on our laptop, mm. and then we released it on our own label. So it's very like, it's ours, you know. Very and, cool. And, and why, as a, why a seven-inch vinyl recording? In, in, you know, the new millennium, <laughs> digital age. I like everything in my life to exist in a physical realm as often as possible. Mm. Like, for example, music, m- like money, um, reading, you know, whatever whatever it is. So I think that just falls under that category. Anti-Kindle, anti-iPod, anti... Uh... I, I have an iPod, but, you know, it's just because mm-hmm. yeah. we tour... <laughs> right. All right. A lot of notice for that for the first LP when it got uh, reissued by In the Red. Did it change the way you approached writing songs and recording uh, what was to be the second record, Everything Goes Wrong? Well, I think I would say that our approach definitely has changed since we were writing and recording the first album, but it's not as much to do with the reviews that we got as it is with other factors. Like, for example, the band is one-third different, so that obviously changed our approach in many ways. But I don't know. I don't. I try not to let anything that people say in reviews really influence what we do. That's a good what you, thing. What do you guys yeah. think don't, about that? Don't read your press. I Cassie's I, right. There's <laughs> definitely something where, like, when we wrote the songs for the first album, nobody knew who we were. And so there's definitely some sort of subconscious, you know, like, you can't avoid knowing that, like, when you write a song now, when we write a song now, probably there's going to be some people who hear it. Whereas, like, when we wrote the first album, like, we, we didn't even know, like, if we were ever going to make an album. We were just writing songs so, of course, there's some sort of level of just knowing that we have an audience now. Yeah, well, as, yeah, you, as you pointed out, Katie, you had to be talked into pressing 500 of that record yeah, instead we of were just very, 300. Yeah, we were, like, scared about it. So. All right, we've been dancing around this, though. Uh, uh, Cassie, you know, it was a kind of a bitter split with drummer number one, Frankie, <laughs> uh, who, who proceeded to, uh, to diss you guys on the blogosphere. But, I mean, like, who hasn't? You're nobody in 2010 if you haven't been dissed on the blogosphere by someone, <laughs> right? You know? Mm-hmm. Was that tough, or was that a was that a crucible in the band? Do we continue? Do we? Um, yeah, it was tough. That's a tough question to answer. Yeah, I'm. I don't know. It's like we had a very complicated relationship and a very complicated breakup, and it's still complicated to this day. I don't know what I should say. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's still yeah. complicated. That's fair enough. Enough said. I know you're going to play us a cover later, but you're you're noted for doing some interesting covers on on stage. <laughs> sometimes you've done the Beach Boys, which nobody covers the Beach Boys because that's tough, yeah. you know, to pull it off, right? Uh, it, what makes a good cover song when you when you decide to play someone else's tune? What gets for, you excited? For me, it's all about like the moment. Uh, like when we wrote, when we decided to cover the Beach Boys, we were writing like surfy songs. Ali had just joined. It was very like that was kind of the song of the moment. Yeah. Uh, the song, the cover we're gonna play later. That uh, we had the best day of our lives yesterday. So um, <laughs> we're on tour with the band Male Bonding mm-hmm. from England, and we just like had the best day, and we all agreed. Like we've all toured a lot, and we all agreed that yesterday was maybe the best day of tour any of us had ever had. So then wow. we figured out a great cover to commemorate our good day. So we learned uh-huh. a cover during soundcheck, and then we are going to play it like later on the show. What makes this amazing day? What was it? What were the elements that I made don't, it so well, perfect? No. Well, when we 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 uh, stayed at a hotel in Canada, and then we we were going to cross over the border into into Detroit, and um, we were at the gas station near the hotel, and we <laughs> saw four juggalos. Uh, 
fixing an overheating car. Fixing a car. And we just knew right then. Yeah. I think they brought us good luck. Fans of the insane clown posse. Yes. And we... Fixing a car in Detroit. Okay. Yeah. And right then, it was just the vibes of the whole... Like, sometimes it's not really about what you do. It's just about, like... The mood, Definitely. and it was just uh-huh. the best mood. Uh, yeah, yeah. We we saw um, we saw that art project, the Heidelberg project in Detroit, which oh, was amazing. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we the venue we played, the Magic Stick, is one of the best venues I've ever been to. That's a it's great like, rock club. We were, we were talking, we were saying that we could live in there. It had yeah. everything yeah. you need. Bowling pool. Yeah, wow. it is Music. a great club. <laughs> great food. It was just awesome. Yeah. Before we get away from the the lyrical topic of of the other girls, let me ask this in a way that's not the the, the rock critic question you get a million times. But Ali, earlier you had said one of the things was great about New Brunswick was that it was supportive to female musicians. I remember going back to to the early '90s with L7, and they were their line uh, always struck me as the great one. It's like. We are not going to be anywhere until people stop talking about our band as a great female rock band and just say we're a great freaking rock band. Yeah. Now, do you feel you get that or not? And, I mean, you know, you you do have girls in the name of the band and the other girls is a song about, you know, I don't want to be in a box, right? So you address these themes, but then everybody has to ask you the dreaded women in rock question. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but I would definitely say with, like, uh, when we were playing music in New Brunswick basements, there wasn't, like, all these blogs writing about it with people commenting about our looks and stuff. No. You know, like, it was just us and our friends having fun. Yes. And now it's, like, a ba- you know, a girl band and indie rock. It's just all over the Internet, just people commenting on things that they probably that don't shouldn't be commenting on. Oh, that's horrible. That's so, so you're saying occasionally you stumble across something, Katie, where, like, people are talking about your looks? Oh, just it's yesterday. Worse. Just yesterday there was a review from our Toronto show, and it— it was like a report card of our show, and it was uh-huh. sexiness. We got like a good rating, and oh. it was like, <laughs> you know, they're not hot, but you know, they're, they're not okay. Attractive either. Like, oh, we also got an excellent for problem solving because this guy jumped up on stage, and I body checked him off. <laughs> All right, wow. All <laughs> so right. that we got an excellent for that. Shades of Riot Girl, there. Cool. <laughs> so we're gonna have one more song, and Mel Bonding, who you're touring with uh, uh, on this tour, are gonna join us as the male choir. Is that right? They yes. are our gentlemen choir. Our gentlemen choir. So what are we gonna hear? We're gonna hear "Perfect Day" by Lou Reed. It's about the day we had yesterday, which is the best day ever. <laughs>
That was an incredible treat, was it not, Mr. Cott? Indeed. Perfect Day by uh, Lou Reed, as done by the Vivian Girls, with uh, male bonding on the backing vocals. As the Gentleman Choir. We want to thank uh, Cassie Ramon, Katie, and Allie Kohler of Vivian Girls for being our guests on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much, ladies, for stopping in. Thank you Thank you so much. To listen to the Vivian Girls' entire live performance and see some video of them in studio, visit soundopinions.org. Make a comment on our conversation or anything in the rock world, Call 888-859-1800, and we may put your message on the air. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the latest from R&B superstar Usher, and then I'll drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is Usher with a song called Papers from his sixth studio album, Raymond vs. Raymond. Usher Raymond from Atlanta has been around since the mid-90s when he was only a teenager, a uh, child prodigy type star, known as much for his athletic dance moves as for his uncanny ability to channel the vocal styles of people like Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder didn't have really a distinct persona, but you know what? He carved out a commercial niche for himself by sort of presenting himself as a less threatening version of R. Kelly. Yeah. And sold a lot of records doing it. People probably best remember him for that 2004 hit produced by Lil John called Yeah. As simple as it sounds, it worked magically in the clubs and led to a 9 million selling album. Then he got married 
had a kid, started to craft a more mature style in his 2008 release, Here I Stand. And that record flopped. So here he is, kind of at the crossroads of his career. 31 years old. Since that record came out, he got divorced. What's he going to do now? Let's play a track from the new record, and then we're going to review it. The name of the album is Raymond vs. Raymond, and here's a track called Foolin' Around from Usher on Sound Opinions. I know I vowed to never do this again, but uh, I guess it seems to be the only thing I'm good at. Got something that you need to know. Be the riddance that I never wrote. Can't hold it, gotta let it go. Know that I mean every note. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, baby. Let me start by saying that the way I feel for you is never once changed. And the games I've played, mistakes I made, leave me sorrier than you'll ever know. We got a problem, baby, I can't lie. Lately I realized that I Never knew that we was on the same Knew that it was wrong but we And I know you never knew when you said I do That you would have to face all the pain It's killing me girl That you have to live with this Live with the lies I tell Live with the pain you feel Knowing the man you love Is fooling around Oh baby said it's killing me girl And I just don't understand Just the man in me, blaming on celebrity when the nighttime feel like the right time, and it's my life feel like the right life. But it's really just my fears, and I still don't try your tears when I say she ain't you, and I really love you more than you. Say if it's true, I'll you do it for and die. I really don't have no excuse, but I break your heart, make you cry. Yes, that is Usher Raymond IV with a song from his sixth studio album. It's called Foolin' Around. The album is Raymond v. Raymond, named after, I would suppose, the divorce suit, Mm -hmm. where he uh, split up with Tamika Foster, his former stylist, nearly eight years his senior. She was a mother of three, and then they had two children together, Greg. Mm -hmm. I really thought that his last album, Here I Stand, in 2008, was was a huge leap forward. This is when the boy became a man. Here he is singing about suddenly becoming a father with his own children and Mm -hmm. as a stepfather and trying to be a faithful husband. And these are topics that in the last two decades in R&B, which has been dominated by R. Kelly, has been all about... uh, Going to the club and doing lots of nasty things as often as possible with every woman you can mm-hmm. ensnare. Usher, I think, was was very ungallant and, and pretty much a cad, solipsistic and ungentlemanly on Confessions in 2004. It was all about him splitting up with uh, Chili Thomas of TLC, right? Mm-hmm. Then he makes this album about, I'm going to be a man, I'm going to be a father, I'm going to be a husband. It flops. It sells one-tenth of what Confessions sold. Yeah. And then he goes back to the same old tricks, which is, I'm in the club, I'm a player, I'm irresistible. There's a song called So Many Girls where yeah. he's just running down. I love Egyptian girls. I love Brazilian girls. I love these girls. Yeah. I love those girls. Worst of all, a song called Little Freak, which would even embarrass R. Kelly. It's about trying to arrange a menage a trois with 
two lesbian women. The most obnoxious <laughs> thing about it is it samples the immortal Stevie Wonder song, Living for the City, yeah. which was a timeless classic of social criticism, a political pop masterpiece, and he's using it for these ends? This is a despicable record. If we had something lower on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale than trash it, it would be that. Well, the thing about Usher is that he knows better. I mentioned the fact that he was referencing Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson early in his career. He clearly adored those artists. You know, at the uh, Michael Jackson Memorial Concert last year, he had one of the key moments. He was singing Gone Too Soon, and some people said he overplayed it. He was singing to Michael's coffin. You know, I mean, it was a hugely dramatic moment. It was a bit much. But, you know, he was teared up by the moment, and clearly he has respect for the music that those artists created in the 70s and 80s, and he was channeling that style, and at his best, he can do that very well. There are three tracks on this record which indicate what might have been. There Goes My Baby, a beautiful ballad. He gets up into that falsetto range. It's a potentially a classic song. And Papers and Fooling Around, the tracks that we played earlier, where he digs into the circumstances surrounding his divorce. Yeah, but even then, the grooves are really sleepy, Greg. Well, I give him credit for at least digging in a little deeper, being a little bit more introspective. But what I'm hearing here primarily, and you're exactly right, is a 31-year-old man going through a midlife crisis, mm. trying to be what he was when he was a 20-year-old kid. It's like, okay, you've done that album about four Four times already. We don't need to hear it again. It's a trash at record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away, island lost at sea. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded far from home. Come on. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Stranded out of far from home. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play a track we cannot live without. And this week, it's Jim DeRogatis' turn. Thank you, Mr. Cott. Joan Jett has been on my mind because the Runaways movie is finally opening. I haven't seen it yet. Have you caught it? I have not. I have very mixed feelings. And a couple of the film critic peers of ours have pointed this out. The Runaways were one of the first usually successful all-female rock groups, except they were not uh, promoted as being empowered female rockers. They were promoted as jailbait. That was the (laughs) phrase the record company and their Svengali Kim Fowley kept using. They were underage women, and he was trying to sell them sexually. This was Lolita for rock and roll. Some real elements that were distasteful there. Joan Jett has spent the rest of a fine career basically distancing herself from all of that and putting the power in female empowerment. Born Joan Marie Larkin in rural Pennsylvania, she has a better claim to being the godmother of Riot Girl Punk than anybody else. And I think it pairs nicely with the Vivian Girls, mm-hmm. some of her many, many, many descendants. Joan is ferocious, still making great music today. She doesn't take any guff from anybody. And I can play this for my 13-year-old daughter, and she's just like, wow, mm-hmm. you know? There's a wonderful new Greatest Hits set, two CDs. It's beginning to end great. When Joan is on, she is really on. But as far as I'm concerned, there's no bad Joan Jet. The song I'm going to play is Bad Reputation. I'll just quote it. I've never been afraid of any deviation. I don't really care if you think I'm strange. I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. Those are words to live by as far as I'm concerned. No matter what your sexual preferences, no matter what gender you are, that's rock and roll in a nutshell. Here is Joan Jett, Bad Reputations on Sound Opinions. (laughs) 
that is the great Joan Jett with Bad Reputation, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Great choice, Jim. Uh, next week, we have one of our periodic classic album dissections. We're going to take a look at The Clash's London Calling on its 30th anniversary. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. The Vivian Girls were recorded by Mary Gaffney and Alex Keim, and our own superstar trio of producers is Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Tori Southside Malatia. George Jones Better leave that cell phone alone Don't be talking as you try to get back home If you don't change your ways, my friend You'll be singing duets with Tammy again On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Ed from Chicago. I'm just moments away from hearing uh, your comments on she and him. Jim, your exact thoughts were going through my mind as I heard that song that you played, which is the first time I heard it. The cotton commercial. I mean, that's all I could think of. You gotta love Zoe Deschanel. She's a good actress. She looks great and that first record was pretty good but uh that song oh my god it's cotton all over thanks a lot you guys are great from Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Just uh, heard your South by Southwest show and got to preface this by saying, Capsula, thank you for introducing me to them. I um, I liked that. And Bear in Heaven also, I felt like they deserved that attention. I've been listening to them for a while and I really dig them. But overall, I think you guys did a kind of a disservice to the extreme variety of music that is at South by Southwest. I mean, I felt like you sent the message that best way to get attention right now in 2010 is to either be an international band or to have a ton of synthesizers. Could have been more variety. You could have not talked about Salem. I mean, by your own admission, you guys weren't even sure if you liked them. I mean, I don't really feel like that was worthy of a here's what's awesome right now in the music world show. But, uh, yeah, I'm sticking with the show. Even though you got the Vivian Girls on next week, I'll, I'll stick with you guys. Just uh, impress me in the show after next, please. All right, thanks. This is James in Atlanta. I was just calling to unfortunately tell you that the show on South by Southwest didn't do a whole lot for me, and usually I hear at least one or two things in your show that I haven't heard before that I enjoy, but I don't know how you got your picks that you chose for this show, but I mean, from the Russian band that to me just sounded god awful to the duo, I can't remember their names because they really weren't that good, to this Salem band that just sounded, just sounded terrible. I mean, talk about awful recordings. Then, you, then the icing on the cake was the She and Him record, which was, uh, in my opinion, also pretty horrendous. To me, this show was just a trash it show on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Sorry, guys. I'll listen in next week. Thanks, guys.
Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Johnny from Providence. Uh, I just want to say this obsession with girl rock has to end. I mean, JJ, St. Vincent, she and him. Oh, I'm just listening. I was listening to the South by Southwest show. Oh, guess who's on next week? Vivian Girls. I'm so sick of this girl rock. I want to hear a guy on vocals, some distorted guitar, enough of this drum machine, electronic stuff you guys are obsessed with. Anyway, I love the show. Bye. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.